I, I really needed to understand my writing better. You know, my first novel, I, I, I like to tell people that, you know, it was good. I liked that first novel, but it really felt like an airplane that I built by myself in the garage. You know, it flew, but, you know, I, if I had help, I think I can build a rocket ship. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with author and journalist Sophronia Scott, who's debuted three books in the past six months, including a historical novel set in 1940s Harlem, a spiritual memoir that touches on the school shooting at Sandy Hook, and Love's Long Line, an essay collection that came out this week. I actually know Sophronia from her writing at Time Magazine, where she conceived and reported what was probably the most influential article of the 1990s. It was a July 1990 cover story called Proceeding with Caution, which explored the hopes and dreams of the post-baby boom generation. This article was ground zero in terms of how we've come to talk about the demographic we now know as Generation X. This article was actually quoted in Douglas Copeland's seminal novel Generation X, which came out the following year. And here's filmmaker Richard Linklater talking about it in the commentary track to his iconic 1991 movie Slacker. There had been a Time Magazine article not long before called 20-somethings. What do they want? I remember actually using that with Pearson saying, hey, here's our audience. Because people would say, there's no audience for this. There's no audience. And so I would use that in an active way saying, no, here, here's an audience. It's a new generation who's looking at things a little differently and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's our audience. That would be a selling point for us. Now, in retrospect, in the internet era, it seems a little weird that a single magazine article could frame the way we still talk about a generation of 48 million Americans. And Sophronia and I talk about that, and she details how the idea for that article came into being when she was a 23-year-old reporter at Time. I've put a link to that article in my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. We also talk about Sophronia's life journey from a working-class family in Ohio to being a student at Harvard, as well as her decision to change careers after she had a child and what happened when her child was at Sandy Hook Elementary the day a gunman killed 26 students and staff there back in 2012. We talk about Sophronia's midlife decision to start attending church and how this brought a new spiritual perspective into her writing. We also talk about her love for pro football, so we cover a lot of ground. Here she is. Right, so I'm talking to Sophronia Scott, uh, who is the uh, author of several, actually the author of three books that have come out just in the last six months or so, uh, including Unforgivable Love, uh, which is sort of dangerous liaisons set in Harlem. Also, This Child of Faith, which uh, covers spiritual matters, uh, motherhood, and also uh, the Sandy Hook school shooting from 2012. And also a book that is coming out this week called Love's Long Line, which, as I understand it, Sophronia, is that an Annie Dillard quote? Uh, absolutely. It's from her book, Holy the Firm, about how we reel out love's long line alone. Yes. All right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Annie Dillard fan. Uh, I quote her quite a bit in my first book, Vagabonding. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. Actually, I want to touch on one uh, thing that I think is going to appear in this book, uh, which is... Uh, your name. I'm a, I'm a person with an unusual name, but I think Rolf is probably a little bit more common than Sophronia. Uh, and as I understand it, you write an essay about your name. Uh, and actually, before I Skyped you, I noticed there's three other Sophronias on Skype. And so can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, how you ended up being named Sophronia? Yeah. And, but my question is, do they have the F in their name? Ooh. Well, I guess they don't. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I probably can't re-Skype you at this point. I actually did a search just because I'm, I'm curious about this demographically. I found 17 Sophronias uh, just through like white pages searches. Um, none of them are older than, uh, younger than about 39 years old, and they're sort of a cluster around 70 or 80. Um, yep, that sounds about right. So, so give us the story of this, of this unusual name. Okay, so... Uh, Simply, the short version is that I'm named after my father's mother. And my father, uh, gosh, he'd be close to 90 now if he was still alive, so you can see how far back that goes. And he was raised in Mississippi. So in this country, the name Sophronia was actually very popular in the South at the turn of the century. So I bet a lot of those older Sophronias you found were um, in Tennessee or you know Arkansas or places like that. 
Um, but my name, and, and what's great is, you know, there are references to it. Um, George Bernard Shaw had a sister named Sophronia, and he used that name often in his plays. And um, gosh, it's just, it's, it just pops up. It's really an ancient name, in fact. It goes back to the Crusades, even. There is an Orthodox saint named Sophronius, which is the masculine version. And uh, it means of sound mind, you know, the soph part being wisdom and the phronia part being the mind. Interesting. And, you know, you're exactly right uh, of the Sophronias I found. They're mostly in the South or in Detroit, um, which I would, is it an African-American specific name or is it just Southern sort of uh, among all races? Do you know? Uh, no, it's it's among all races. I actually recently came into contact with a Sophronia uh, who is white. And she lived in Florida uh, when she discovered me. She'd seen my name in a magazine and reached out to me recently. So, um, so no, it's it's not. But it's it really is unusual to to see how it pops up in various places. Interesting. And and your new book has an, an essay about your name. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, because I really have I think a lot about my name, and it occurred to me as I was writing this essay how it's probably protected me in certain ways uh, growing up. And that, that came out as I was writing the essay, as I saw how I, I grew into this name, both in terms of, of um, understanding it, but also in terms of understanding myself and my connection to it. Um, I was never one of those kids who, who didn't like having a name that people couldn't spell or, or pronounce for that matter. Um, my name has always been just very much a part of me and, and I've always stood up for it and, and, and I've loved it. And I also f really discovered that I have a thing. Like I'm, it, I'm really proud of the fact that my father named me. And, and that didn't occur to me until I went to graduate school and started meeting all these new people in recent years. And, you know, people will say, oh, that's such a pretty name. How did your mother come up with that? And I found myself getting my hackles up. I'd be like, uh, excuse me, my father, my father, excuse me, named me. <laughs> And then I, I caught myself doing that one day. I was like, whoa, what is that? <laughs> so well, that? That led me to start the essay. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your father because he shows up in your bio. And I sort of want to trace a path from, you know, your, your youth in Ohio and then your education at Harvard and then later your position at Time Magazine, which where you wrote this article that's arguably the most influential art, uh, article of the 1990s, but your dad appears in your in your uh, bio as a guy who is a big storyteller but couldn't read. So talk a little bit about your youth and, and the path that took you, which it feels like an unusual path from small town Ohio to Harvard University and beyond. Yeah, exactly. You know, my father was born in, in 1919, so he was, he was very much of a different world, uh, never knew how to read, and left Mississippi with his brothers and with the Great Migration. So he went south, and that, I'm sorry, he went north, and that's how he ended up in Ohio. Um, he worked in the steel mill, which is how uh, most people, who, especially those who weren't educated, made a really good living years ago, right? You could work in a, in a steel mill. Um, in Lorraine, we, had, we used to have the world's largest Ford plant. There was um, a, a huge shipping industry there. So there, there was a way to, um, to make a living, and that's what my dad did. Um, he had seven children, including myself. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy because my father was a tough man. He, he raised us the way he was raised, which meant you use the switch on kids. And, and, he was, and he didn't understand school himself, so it really perturbed him when he would find me, you know, um, hunched in the bathroom reading a book when he had told me to go get something. You know, he really hated that. So, um, so it was a really um, unusual thing. Like He totally did not understand uh, when I wanted to go away to school and to find out that I had been accepted at this place called Harvard, which he'd never heard of, and, and, and the concept of sending a girl away to school. I was the oldest girl in the family. Um, really frightened him. I didn't appreciate until later how much he was afraid for me. Um, so I, I came to appreciate that later when I started to understand and look through his eyes at the world uh, when I became a writer and started thinking about, you know, the way that he thought about things. But um, but but that's and going to Harvard really just opened up my whole world because, 
you know, I, I had a very limited viewpoint um, coming from where I came from. But at the same time, I appreciate the, the things that my father gave me. You know, I have a tremendous work ethic and, and yeah, an appreciation of, of story and, and of looking at people and uh, and of just appreciating the, the things that I have because we didn't have a lot when I was a kid. As your father's daughter, was the transition to Harvard difficult? Because that's a, you know, that's an old money institution with its own rituals. Or did you just dive right in? Oh, I just dove right in. I was I was starving for it, in fact. Um, I think what helped my transition was the fact that um, I'd gone to a week-long program uh, the year before I graduated from high school. There used to be a program called the Martin Essex School for the Gifted. And it, it featured, um, you applied to it, and it was 60 of the top students in Ohio. And we would spend a week at Ohio State University basically taking classes and getting to know each other. And for all of those students, um, it was for us the first time in our lives that we realized we weren't um, weird. <laughs> you know, we, we stayed up all night long talking about books, talking about just thoughts that we could never share with anyone else before. And so to me, that was a taste of what college could be like. And, and actually five of us from that group ended up going to Harvard. So I was, I was all raring to go. <laughs> That's awesome. And, yeah. uh, I read somewhere that you started out as like a pre-med student, but somehow you ended up in the world of letters. So what, what, yeah. um, how did that transition happen in university? Well, Rolf, you have to think, you know, Growing up with, with my father, you know, I didn't have a concept of, of people writing for a living. I didn't understand that. You know, I knew who Toni Morrison was, and but it just seemed like a different um, world. Like, I, I didn't know how one made money as a writer. And because of my family situation, it was important to me to be able to support myself however I went out into the world. And to me, um, I could do that as a doctor. I felt like I could be a really good doctor. Um, even though I, I have been writing. I've been writing since I was um, a girl. So when I got to Harvard and was really unhappy in science classes, I really hated organic chemistry, um, I was at the same time taking writing classes because that was, you know, that made me happy and I really enjoyed it. And one of my writing teachers finally said to me, what are you doing? Don't you realize you're good enough to get paid for this? And I said, what? <laughs> Where? How? Ooh. And and he was the one who uh, kind of put me in the in the way of a a recruiter from Time Magazine. And you know back then, Time Magazine they didn't recruit um, young people out of journalism programs. They recruited them from writing programs. And I didn't know this. So um, so this you know I guess there was someone who regularly kind of you know said oh is there anyone we should be looking at and and he put me in that that realm and so time magazine hired me right out of college i became a reporter researcher and uh, and learned the trade i tell people they stole me from my cradle and raised me as a journalist awesome now so what year did you start at time magazine 1988 july of 1988 Okay, so so uh, a couple years later, you wrote this this article about twenty somethings, and I think you know from my listeners who are who are of a younger generation, they might not understand just how uh, much of an influence a bit a, a print magazine like Time had at the time, and uh, so I'm I'm really curious about this. I mean, I always. You know, my grandmother subscribed to Time Magazine on Sundays. We would visit her place after church, and I would read Time Magazine, and it was sort of this official voice for the rest of the world uh, in, in in this pre-internet time. But yet, it had this very institutional presence, and so I think it's fun to be talking to someone who wrote an article on behalf of the institution that had such an impact. So, how did over the course of two years, how did you become the person who was tapped to to try and you know? quantify and describe this generation? Well, well, first of all, Rolf, it didn't work that way. It wasn't that, that I was tapped. Um, <clears throat> at Time Magazine, you pitch stories. Wow. And, and I was a reporter researcher in the business section, and so was um, my colleague, David Gross. So David and I were the same age, and we started at the magazine about the same time. <clears throat> and, you know, as a reporter researcher, you're learning the trade and you're fact-checking, but at the same time, you're trying to make your mark. You're trying to pitch a story that you will get to report and write yourself. So David and I decided to team up 
um, to do a story, to pitch a story. And we were thinking about, you know, well, what could we, we wanted to do something, you know, big. We were really, you know, sitting in our offices, just brainstorming. And we kept coming back to this <clears throat> idea of the way our generation seemed to be handling our careers. Because remember, David and I were in the business section. <clears throat> and, um, and it seemed like, and David went to Brown, by the way, and it just seemed like we were handling things in a very different way, the, that our classmates didn't feel wedded to the, the companies that, that we were joining, that we were trying to really think about our lives in a very different way and, and proceed with caution. <clears throat> that, seemed, that, was the, um, that, that ended up being the, the um, headline of the story. So David and I um, thought, well, maybe there is something ab about this. You know, we started um, making phone calls. We started um, looking up data about this group. And, and it seemed like we were moving slowly through certain um, landmarks like marriage, uh, even though we, you know, we were still in our early 20s. So David and I wrote up this. Um, we, we wrote up a suggestion. You know, it was several paragraphs long and we submitted it through the system. And our editor at the time, it was um, Steve Kep. Um, came into our offices and said, do you think this could be the, that you could even broaden this beyond the business section? And we said, well, absolutely, because we found out things having to do with with marriage and family and, and all sorts of other decisions, you know, religion. So um, so we um, he we modified the the suggestion and he took it to the higher ups at Time magazine. Now, at this point, Rolf, you know, when they decided that they could run with this and that it, it could be a cover story, at that point, it could have been taken away from us. Now, from the way that the, the magazine ran, um, you had reporters, you had teams of reporters reporting stories and they would get filed to New York City and then one writer would write it up and write the story. And, that, and so you would have a byline at the top and then at the bottom, it would say reported by, and then you'd have a list of names and different um, bureaus. And so um, that could have easily have happened, that um, it could have been given to a writer, <clears throat> and David and I would have been um, reporters on the story. But I remember the day um, Steve came into our office and he said, you know, we're going to run this story, uh, we're going to go with it, and we, we were going to let you guys write it. We think you can do it. And however many <laughs> drafts it takes, um, you guys can do it. And that was huge. Um, we were the youngest cover story writers at Time Magazine. This had never been done before. Wow. And so we, we dove into it. David and I handled the, um, the East Coast reporting. And we called in. Um, we had bureaus reporting, I believe, from um, the, everywhere, Midwest, West, South bureaus, um, all over the place. And so, and, and we did it. We, we put that story together and it ran. And so it was, it was huge. It made our careers, obviously. Yeah. How, how old were you and David at the time? Uh, 24. Let's see. That was 1990. Yeah. That was right. Um, that was like the week before my 24th birthday when it came out. Wow. Yeah. yeah July 16th, 1990. I'm, I'm going to read the opening to the story or sort of a, an edited version to the opening of the story, just because sort of the tr the tropes that you that you and david uh uh presented continue to be tropes uh, about which generation x is described so here's the opening it says they have trouble making decisions they would rather hike in the himalayas than climb a corporate ladder they have few heroes no anthems no style to call their own they crave entertainment but their attention span is as short as one zap of a tv dial they postpone marriage because they dread divorce. They possess only a hazy sense of their own identity, but a monumental preoccupation with all the problems of the preceding generation and what they will leave for them to fix. This is the 20-something generation, those 48 million young Americans ages 18 to 29 who fall between the famous baby boomers and the boomlet of children the baby boomers are producing. By whatever name, so far they are an unsung generation hardly recognized as a social force or even noticed at all. And so it's amazing how this is your article, the article that you and David put together is really ground zero for how we talk about and begin to describe what has become Generation X. And you yep. know, um, and uh, the <clears throat> sorry, and the millennials. And the millennials, that's true. And and one, some of the things that, that 
you guys wrote about in this story are also qualities that have been attached to millennials. Um, yeah. But one interesting thing, you know, Derrida, the, the philosopher, talked about how sometimes uh, to define something, we define things by difference. You know, apples are, are apples because they're not oranges. And one big end to this story seemed to be baby boomers, that this was a generation that was different from baby boomers. Um, right. And then, and so some of some of how you define things was in contrast to baby boomers and sort of sort of in resentment to baby boomers because that that was a noisy generation. I mean, TV yeah. was full of baby, and I think it continues to be um, a noisy generation. And so, one quote from the article says this: uh, that this new generation considered the baby boomers to be self-centered, fickle, and impractical. Um, and uh, there was an there was an interesting quote. Let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, a, a woman, uh, Christina Chin of Denver, says the media don't really give young people role models anymore. Now you have role models like Donald Trump and all the money makers with no one, no one with real ideas. So in retrospect, that's sort of an interesting yeah. quote. Yes. <laughs> um, so so how did how did you come? I'll, I'll touch on some other qualities from the article, including a lot of generalizations that feel very close to the way people talk about uh, millennials and young people these days. But how did you latch on to the idea of contrast to the baby boom generation? Well, it was it was an obvious thing because the baby boomers, like you said, are, are were so absolutely present, you know, and not just um, not just in the media, the way you were talking about in the news, but even in in what we see on TV and such. I mean, when you think about it, um, younger people, young people are all over television now, right? Like like they are the main characters in in dramas and things like that. But if you look at a TV show like Dallas, who who were the main characters? They were they were people in their 40s, right? <laughs> their 30s and 40s. They were not um they were not young people. So this so we were, you know, brought up with with these older people all around us who who seemed to be getting all of the attention, but it was never about us. I, I think too, just, like um, there was a show that was supposedly about young people, but it was called Thirty Something. You know, the idea that baby boomers were still trying to sell themselves as the young people, even while uh, this new generation was coming up. And so it feels like the the, the, the title on the cover said Twenty Something, which was almost a riff on the idea of that kind of self definition. Yeah, that's exactly what that was. Yeah, and I was a big fan of Thirty Something. I watched that show all the time. It was very interesting. Another interesting thing, too, you know, a, a big general generational discussion was created by the TV show Girls a few years ago. Um, but because we have Twitter and, and blogs and other social media, uh, immediately um, people who were young who disagreed with certain generalizations by or about the show um, could immediately have a voice about it. Whereas it feels like around 1990, there wasn't young people didn't have a chance to to speak in a way that was recognized uh, coast to coast. Uh, so, so again, I think your article had an outsized influence. Um, one thing that one thing about the art that the article said, uh, it it said things that um, you know this new generation has. Uh, they're postponing growing up. They're not buying houses. They're not getting married. Sometimes they sound a little whiny. Uh, they're demanding as employees. Uh, they, uh, employers say they refuse to pay their dues. And interestingly, these are the exact same things people are saying about millennials these days. Um, and so, how did you how did you grab onto these qualities? And do you think it's and how did you differentiate between how a generation thinks and how just young people in general think? Well, I think you know. For us, you know, for for David and I, that would have been a hard thing to um to separate, right? Because we were young people, you know. I mean, I could look back on that now and, and think about that delineation, but but I, you know, we really wouldn't have known the difference, um, because we were thinking the way that we think, right? <laughs> uh, right. I'm not even sure how to answer that question, uh, but but I can. I can say to you, though, that the way it's played out, the, the way the generation has moved through, it's it's more, you know, that description is more speaking almost to an older generation. But, you know, to me, the heart of the story was really about consideration and, and again, proceeding with caution and, 
and being thoughtful about the way we lived our lives. Now, I don't know if you've, you found it, Rolf, um, but Time Magazine did a follow-up on our generation. I mean, I was no longer at the magazine, but it ran um, when we would have been in our like late 30s, early 40s. So it, it was like, a, gosh, it was an anniversary of that, that cover. So maybe like 10, uh, about, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But it's talking about how um, our generation, uh, we, we were leaving those jobs, like people who had prestigious jobs like lawyers, um, leaving to be parents because we wanted to be stay-at-home parents. And this was both men and women that um, um, that was going on with our generation. And that didn't surprise me at all because it, to me it was the same concept, the fact that we didn't want to do the things that, that, that we were supposed to do, right? That just being very thoughtful about the way we wanted to live our lives. And, and I was, I had nothing to do with that article. Um, I, you know, I only saw it after the fact, but I was in the process of doing exactly the same thing. You know, I left the corporate world so that I could be here at home raising my child. Yeah. And I actually want to talk about your path from Time Magazine and People Magazine to, you know, raising a child, getting a, um, uh, a mid mid-career MFA degree, and then sort of branching out into other types of writing. But while we're, while we're talking about um, this article, um, was it daunting to try and write? I mean, you have, uh, you're trying to describe 48 million people who span many lines, uh, you know, economically and, and culturally and racially. Uh, did you and David, how did you and David um, deal with the fact that you, at some point, were going to have to be a little bit reductive in reporting this story? Well, and this is the way I, we have to do big stories like this um, at time anyway. So, so this is part of you know what we've done. Even though we weren't writing that story, we filed stories in the past where you're where you're trying to explain very big concepts. So, so that wasn't um, you know yes, it was a challenge, but it wasn't out of the ordinary to us. You know, it wasn't, it was, it was in our wheelhouse to have to do that. The question is, you know, what is the best way to do it? You know, do we have um, the right stories? You know, what stories are indicative of, of what we're trying to talk about? Do we have the statistics? You know, um, what is the material telling us that we have in front of us? So it's, it's not as though we were working with, um, from a ground zero, so to speak. We, we, had things to work with. It's just how do you translate this now onto the written page? Well, it's interesting that um, a lot of those topics that you brought up in that story are are continued through, especially throughout the '90s, to to sort of define how the generation was spoke of spoken of. Do what's your what has been your relationship to that article over the years? Because because really it was. It was sort of this this ground zero document. It was this beginning document in the way people talked about uh, Generation X. I mean, uh, did, was it strange to to like listen to Richard Linklater or, or Douglas Copeland talk about this article as, and how it influenced them, or was it just another day in the life of your uh, job as a journalist? A, a little bit of both, you know, because Time Magazine is a weekly, so it's like okay, you know, on to the on to the next thing. But um, I'm I'm actually more surprised, Rolf, that that it's coming up now. That that it's you know it's it's strange to me. Like some of my classmates, I, I'm in a pretty big um, uh, Facebook group for my Harvard classmates, and it's amazing to me how it still comes up and and people talk about it. And it was even represented at our um, 25 year reunion. Somewhat they had covers of it there, and I was like, wow. <laughs> People still remember that. <laughs> you know, that that's a surprise to me, and maybe it's because I'm of the mindset of what journalism is now that of things that don't last. So I'm, I'm that's it's a pleasant surprise, but I'm still surprised. Yeah, yeah, um, and and of course it's 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 what um, got me like all these years later. I, I'm still thinking about it. You know, at, at the time again, it arrived as this physical object while I was working at a summer camp, uh, but. 
here I am talking to you uh, about it all these years later. So take us from from your time at Time Magazine and later People Magazine to your decision, uh, as many people of our generation have done, to to leave the corporate world, to li- to leave the hyper professional world, raise a family, get a master's degree, and try other avenues of creativity. Well, the the path wasn't straight. <laughs> you know, it was it was um, it was a constant discovery. Um, I knew at a certain point that that I just didn't want to um, try to raise a child while in in the business because it the schedule was really hectic uh, you know, New York City is New York City and and you know my father he he worked at the steel mill until he was about 58 and he had to retire on a disability um, he had a heart condition so I was about eight years old when that happened so. I had both of my parents home my whole life, pretty much. And and as difficult as that was, I, I truly feel that, that my siblings and I are different because of it. So that was always in my mind somehow that, that I, I knew I wanted to be at home with my child. Uh, I used to take a week off. Um, you know, we got we a lot of vacation time at Time Inc. And I used to take one of those weeks and not go anywhere. I would I would take that week and work from home and pretend I was I was a stay-at-home writer just to figure out what that life felt like and what it could be. Um but then uh 9/11 happened. I was at People magazine when that happened. And I don't know if you knew this Rolf, but but there were a lot of people who got pregnant right after that. Hmm. hmm. In a way I'm not surprised. Yeah, um, my husband uh, was teaching in Connecticut at the time, and he could not get back into the city. Um, you know, you, they closed off the city, and when he when he did manage to get back, you know, we we conceived a child. But I miscarried about um, three months later, and a colleague of mine at People, actually, she worked in the our LA bureau. She too got pregnant at exactly the same time. But she had her child, so I was able to to watch her go through the difficulties of coming back to work after maternity leave and, and balance that. And it occurred to me that, okay, I've always said that I wanted to live a certain way, and I'm not on the path that's going to lead me there. So I could have easily have been in, in this um, really hard situation that I saw her in of, of balancing work and family. So I saw it as, as much as I was sad about that, miscarriage, it occurred to me, okay, I have an opportunity to do this differently. You know, how am I going to, how am I going to leave? So, um, first of all, I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do to make money? (laughs) So, um, I actually became Rolf, um, a life coach. I got trained as a life coach. And at the same time I was writing my first novel, uh, while I was still at people. So when I left people, I had, um, I was able to, um, take a buyout package when the opportunity came because I had already started a life coaching business and my first novel was about to come out. So that's, I, I took that little leap from there. Um, and then a funny, and then, um, and I was pregnant. I got pregnant right away too. So my first novel and my baby were born at about the same time. <laughs> so that was, that was a pretty crazy time. Um, I was able to really think about my life coaching business as I was um, promoting my book. And I noticed that a lot of people were asking me about how to get published. And I thought, now that's odd. It, that, that information is out there. You know, it's, you know, you can take publishing classes. You can learn about writing a book. But it seemed to me that if people were asking this question, then they must need it in a different way that, than they're finding. So I actually changed my business to become a book coaching business. And I worked with people on that. Um, I taught classes around that. I eventually shifted my business to work very specifically with entrepreneurs. And I taught them how to write books to promote their businesses. I also um, was a ghostwriter and I helped them write these books. But Rolf, you know, it occurred to me a few years into it, that even though the business was doing well, I wasn't doing my own writing. I totally lost um, track of it because I was writing all these other books that weren't mine. It was kind of almost like being at People Magazine again. I was writing all this stuff that wasn't mine. So um, 
I was really frustrated about that. Didn't know what to do. I was trying to figure out how to steer the ship into a different direction. And then in June of 2011, one of my sisters died. She had a health issue. She wasn't even a year younger than me. And she died. And that was a huge shock for me. And I realized that our time here is not guaranteed. And I said, I have to be doing the thing that I feel that I'm here to do. And I, I have to stop this. So I, I stopped my business. I finished up with the clients um, that I already had. I was still in the grieving process um, when I started applying to uh, graduate school. I felt that that would help me. I felt that that would help um, get me refocused in my own writing. It would help me understand my own um, what makes me special as a writer. And it would just open some doorways in terms of me meeting people who want to write in the way that I wanted to write. So that's what happened. That's why I ended up going to uh, graduate school and I did. And you are absolutely right, Rolf. Um, it took me into directions that I did not expect. I did not expect to be writing about spirituality. And, you know, I was there to, <clears throat> I was there to study fiction, but, um, but when you meet other people who, who recognize your talents, that you end up doing things that you don't expect to do. So it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like your, your career has become very multidisciplinary now. So, so you didn't really uh, – um, sometimes people get MFAs for, you know, for the teaching certification. Sometimes they do it for the structure. Um, and so it sounds like maybe you did it for the, the community or, or just the, the – um, Opportunity to try new things? It was all of that. Um, but mostly, I, I really needed to understand my writing better. You know, my first novel, I, I, I like to tell people that, you know, it was good. I liked that first novel, but it really felt like an airplane that I built by myself in the garage. You know, it flew, but, you know, I, if I had help, I think I could build a rocket ship. I think I could build something that could really go. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I also didn't understand why my writing was good, right? What makes me good? What is unique to Sophronia? And I didn't understand craft well enough to um, put words to what I did or even to manipulate it if I wanted to do something different. So, um, so graduate school helped me put words to all of that. Um, and yes, community in terms of finding writers who were writing in the way that I wanted to write and on a stage in which um, I wanted to write, a, a non-journalism stage, so to speak. <clears throat> so, um, and, and Rolf, interestingly enough, one of the first things I did when I started the, that journey was I changed who I followed on Twitter. Wow. Right? I, I used to follow lots of entrepreneurs and such, and I started following other writers. And we started, you know, I started conversing with them. Um, met writers like Robin Black and, and Lee Martin and um, Erica um, Erica Roebuck, and and they were interested in, in me too. That's that was what was so surprising to me. And people, you know, I have if you look at um, the blurbs on my novel that just came out, you know, I have um, some amazing blurbs on that novel, and not one of those people um, I knew six years ago. I met all of them within these these recent five to six years. So it is possible to make the connections that, that you, you know, that you need to help you do the things that you want to do. That's interesting. You know, I want to talk about the sort of the spiritual awakening that came, that appears to have come in your life and your writing, but really quick, is, is that, is, is the, is the mid-career MFA something you would recommend or is it pretty unique to your own uh, journey? You know, I've, when I was a book coach, I, I still, teach this to my students because now I teach in um, graduate programs, I tell them you have to understand your own particular journey and, and what you need as a writer and who you are and what you want out of the publishing process because that's going to help you make those decisions. So for myself, you know, I didn't uh, apply to graduate school for a long time. Sometimes I think I should have applied back when I first left um, the corporate world. But I kept listening to people saying, Oh, you don't need an MFA. You're already published. Oh, you know, teaching isn't that great, and, and you don't need an MFA for that. And, and I just kept listening to that. But it occurred to me finally to listen to my own voice, which is, I feel I need this. 
and there were very specific reasons why I, I needed the MFA. So that would be my advice is to understand what you want out of it and why you're going and making sure that 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 process is going to get you um, what it is that you want. Because I also find that the writers do that as well, that they say they want something, but then they go down a road that no way is going to get them there and they don't realize it. Right, right. Well, sometimes uh, taking classes again and again and again is a way of forestalling the the, the plunge yeah. into writing itself. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's it's an interesting balance. And I maybe I don't think there's any big, broad prescription. So I, I agree that you really have to figure out what specifically you want. Now, in spiritual terms, what's, what interests me about your spiritual journey, at least on the page, is that the turning point wasn't something vague and new agey. It wasn't something holy rollery, but it was the Episcopal Church. You ended up joining the, the Episcopal Church, um, which is sort of more of a liturgical, traditional type church. So, um, but, but it also has a very strong intellectual tradition. So tell, tell us a little bit about how, at a certain point in your adult life, you became more attached to a very specific Christian tradition. Well, that had more to do with my son, and and this is the the story that's told in in um, in the book that we just that just came out this week, this child of faith. Um, because I've always been a, a spiritual person, I've always had a very strong um, connection to God, and that that comes from childhood. And I never felt that that fit in a particular church. And if anything, uh, you know, the rules and restrictions that felt like hindrances to me. But um, but when my son you know, I knew that structure is, is important to learn many things. And I knew that my son would probably have the same sort of sense of God that I had as a child. I think all children have that. And so I told my husband, well, let's just wait. And, and if he expresses that, that curiosity, then, then we will figure out where is the best place for him to, to learn about that connection. And so my son finally, you know, listening to a Sunday school CD of Veggie Tales, he'd said, Mama, what's Sunday school and can I go? I said, yes, what a great idea. We'll all go. <laughs> and, and as I started researching churches, because I really didn't know the differences between the various faiths, and I started reading about the Episcopal Church, and it occurred to me, this is very similar to the church at Harvard, the, um, the Memorial Church, where I'd had many conversations with um, the Reverend Peter Gomes. And, and I thought, wait, this, this is the way that I feel about faith. There's an openness here. Um, there is a, a, a way towards thinking about getting to know God that I really, truly appreciated. And I also um, appreciated the liturgy and the beauty of, of ceremony. Um, I loved, um, you know, Robin Williams calls the Episcopal Church, one of, well, he has a list, the top 10 reasons to be Episcopalian. And one of them is all of the pageantry, none of the guilt. And I was like, ah, yes, <laughs> you know, this, this feels right. And so that's, that's how I ended up there, and, and my family ended up there. And so I had already begun that journey when I started at, let's see, I started, um, we started going to church in January of 2011. I started going to the Vermont College of Fine Arts at the end of the year, so December of 2011. And I ended up um, making a friend there, um, a writer named Robert Vivian, who is extremely well-versed in, in the mystics, especially Rumi. And somehow, you know, we fell into conversation and he, we kind of recognized each other that, that, that this is a language that we both know and would have these conversations about it and, and ended up, you know, this turned into an ongoing conversation over the course of my time at, at school um, about faith. And, and he seemed to recognize that, that, that I, I could articulate my thoughts on faith in a way that, that most people can't. And I had gone into the program as a fiction writer, you know, and I was only studying fiction, but he was the one who said to me, you should be writing essays. You should be writing creative nonfiction. And I don't know about you, Rolf. I'd never heard of the term creative nonfiction before. And I said to him, I even laughed. I said, that sounds like something I would have gotten fired for in my old life. <laughs> work. Yeah. You know, but, but, um, but the more he, you know, introduced work to me, um, you know, and I had read Annie Dillard before, but I just didn't know that that's what that type of work was. And so um, he really encouraged me just to start, you know, exploring this. And so I started writing essays in addition to the novel that I was working on. And I became a dual genre student 
And, um, and that has, that has just led from one thing to the next. You know, I was, it felt like I was um, on a dual track anyway, because, because of our conversations, I was already reading all of these new writers I'd never heard of, like Frederick Buechner and, um, and Bonhoeffer and, and even more um, Annie Dillard on top of the other assignments that um, the assigned reading that I was taking for my classes. So it just, it just, you know, blew my head open in, in a certain way and put words to things that, that I'd always, um, you know, intimated for myself and, and then started, I could express them now on the page. And so that just became huge for me. I, and I just didn't expect that to become a thing for me. Suddenly I'm, I'm considered a faith writer. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's, I just did not expect that. So was this pretty much a new world for you? I mean, you'd read Annie Dillard. Had you read Thomas Merton or, or any other writers in that uh, spiritual tradition before your, um, your uh, joining the, the Episcopal Church and, and finding these, these new writers? Or was this a completely new ground for you? It was totally new ground. And I never heard of Thomas Merton until um, my, my friend Robert Vivian um, delivered a lecture and quoted... Um, something from conjectures, um, conjectures of a guilty bystander. And that quote still, you know, just set me on fire and I had to go find that book and I had to go find that man. <laughs> and, um, and I just feel like Thomas Merton and I would be hanging out today if he was still alive. I, I adore him. And I'm actually working my way through his journals. I'm on um, volume three um, of his seven volumes of journals. But, um, but yeah, it was <clears throat> totally new to me, totally just exciting, like kindred spirits <laughs> that I, I didn't know were out there. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had known of Merton for a long time, but it was actually travel um, and my interest in travel writing that made me, you know, he kept part of his, I don't know if you've gotten this yet, but he has his Asian journals. Um, yeah, not uh, yet, I have it, but yes. Yeah, well, it's something to look forward to, just his, just something about his gentle spirit and his just very grounded and unique way of looking at the world made it interesting to me as travel writing. And I think he appears in my first book as well. So um, it, it's, we're sort of in a post-religious age. Um, did you get any strange reactions uh, from friends and, and former colleagues when suddenly you were a churchgoer uh, at this adult point in your life? Uh, no, because people didn't, you know, it's, it's not as though I, I shown up with I think you use the phrase holy rollers or a, a born again type thing. Sure. Um, I think people, I, I really wasn't any different. Right. So, so if, if anything, it was like people were already comfortable with it. Cause this is, this is just who I am. And uh, you know, when I, when we had our 25th uh, reunion at Harvard, um, they have all sorts of um, symposia, you know, like these different, um, um, conversations that you can join. And I was, I was asked to be on this panel about spirituality. And for some reason, and this, I guess, shows up in my writing, people, I, they feel safe around me. <laughs> I guess you could put it that way, that, that, um, that somehow, um, I may, that I'm faith, my conversation about faith is safe and, and that they can bring questions to me or, or, um, hear me tell my story and, and they can find themselves in that story. So there, there's something about that. Um, Rob Bell, um, I've been reading a lot of Rob Bell. I love Rob Bell. And I, I think that, that he opens doors for, for people in terms of um, finding a way into their faith to show, you know, this is about love. This is not about punishment. There's, you know, here is a way, to, to find this gift that is here for you. And I like, I like to think that I bring the same kind of energy to the table. Now, uh, you say that in January of 2011, uh, you started going to church, and, and by the end of that year, you were involved uh, in your graduate program and actually talking about faith at, at, at a more intellectual level. But then one year later, there was the tragic shooting at Sandy Hook, which is a school where your son went to school, and this comes up in your book as well. So how did faith come into play in such a horrible situation uh, for both you and your son? Well, you know, I didn't realize, you know, in terms of thinking about faith, you know, in those early hours, you know, right when I was waiting to hear what happened, 
uh, you know, if my son was coming home, you know, there is there was that element of faith of 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 being able to to sit with the waiting, right? So I wasn't um, I w- I was in a place of not fear, but just waiting, you know, and some of that comes from faith. But what I didn't expect, Rolf, is I didn't realize how my son's faith was already deeply seated in him and that he was already depending on it. I did not know that. Um, and I, I write about this, about how in, in the days, because he, he lost his godbrother. So the, the, one of the sons of his godmother died in the shootings. And, um, and, you know, a little boy who was very close to him. And a couple of nights after the shootings, when I asked him, how are you doing? How are you feeling about Ben? You know, Tane's eyes just opened up wide. And he said, Mama, I feel like I'm going to see Ben again. He's going to come down from heaven and he's going to be here with all of us. And, you know, just a few months before that, I had read N.T. Wright's new book, Surprised by Hope. And that book is all about how the concept of bodily resurrection, you know, and, and we recite, you know, words about the resurrection in the Nicene Creed every week. And, but I, but my son did not have to read N.T. Wright to feel this. It was just there for him. And I, I was so surprised by that. Um, that continued, you know, a year, um, gosh, almost two years after that. When he was being filmed for a documentary, um, he joined a theater program that was created in the wake of the shootings as a healing um, uh, program. And my son was nine years old when this is being filmed, and the director of the film asked him, "What's the most important thing in your life?" And we're standing there. I'm, you know, I'm behind the camera. You know, my arms crossed. I'm waiting to hear about Pokemon or something. And Tane just, you know, he thinks for one moment, and then he says, "God." And the director looks at me and I'm like, well, you know, I just, I put up my hands. I'm like, don't ask me. You know, I was, I was that surprised that it would be so much on the surface for him that he could respond that quickly and that certain with such certainty. Um, Whenever that movie is shown now in a theater, there's just dead silence when that moment happens in the film. So that was, you know, if anything, yes, you know, my faith helped me, but if anything, my son taught me what it truly means to lean on faith, you know, to really have it be this active presence, something that you feel and sense, you know, even in the darkest time. That That's what, what it was for us. And does this, is it part of your son's conversation? Has he had trouble uh, relating this experience to people? Um, how does something so horrible enter the conversation of, of in the months and in and, and the years afterward? Well, you have to understand my son's conversation is not in terms of the shooting itself. It's It's on the personal level. So he sees it in terms of the loss of Ben. So if if he if you're in conversation with him, that's what he's going to talk about, you know. And this is what we do talk about because, as I said, this is um we've um, written we've written about this in um, this child of faith, and and you'll see that um that that's that's what he's talking about in terms of um in in the days after the shooting and even now he sees it in terms of that loss. It's an event that was so personal yet so public. And so has that affected how you've ended up talking about and dealing with the situation? Uh, You know, to me, we feel kind of removed from the public aspect of it because when it first happened, um, I, it, it felt like we were in a bubble because to me, all that mattered was, you know, taking care of our friends in the best way that we could and just being in that, that bubble of grief. So I, I could care less about what was going on um, in the public, in, you know, in the media, because, you know, th- this is in this moment, it was, how do I, how do we just get through the day? Um, and I couldn't write about it. You know, I tried to write about it. Um, you know, cause, like you said, I was still in the program and I, I just, I couldn't do it. It was, 
<laughs> nothing made sense. Um, so it was really only about three years later when I finally started um, putting words to the page that, that kind of made sense. And, and it was spurred by something else that was, you know, kind of peripheral to the, to our shootings. So it, it's just a very different thing. I can't describe it. I still don't see it in terms of a national discussion. I, to me, it's, it's, you know, here in my house, it's, it's our community. Now your, your book uh, that you wrote about this with, with your son, is it co-written? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, right now it's just out by the time this airs, it will be, have been out for a few months. Uh, what, what kind of reaction have you been getting uh, to it and what kind of discussion has it, has it created um, as it's been published? Well, people are telling us that, that they find it comforting and they're excited to have um, a message of hope. Um, and the main part of the book, you know, Sandy Hook only comes in at the very end of the book because it, it really is a book about our family's faith journey. So they feel that, um, that, that they like having some sort of um, a model, so to speak, for how they might bring faith into their families. Um, you know, at this point, um, gosh, it's, you know, it's still the holiday season. People are buying it in multiple copies to give as gifts. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm assuming that's going to continue and it will probably show up in church programs as well. So that's, that's what I like about it. I like that, you know, it's not a how-to book. It is a memoir, but people are finding it very instructional. What's next for you? I mean, you sort of have a lot of tools in your toolkit. Where do you see yourself doing next as a writer? Oh, goodness. Um, I do have another novel underway. Uh, it keeps getting interrupted because I'm having to write things like essays. I, I just wrote an essay for Time uh, that ran last week in fact in connection with this story. So my novel keeps getting interrupted, but I'm working on a new novel, another historical fiction. And I'm, I'm starting to wrap my head around another essay collection. I'm starting to feel something uh, coming together. I'm you know, making a list of ideas um, for possible essays. And, and I see that coming together. So I think I'm always going to be doing uh, both. You know, I'm, I'm just a, a writer. I used to think I was a fiction writer, but now I'm just a writer. And I, I write uh, whatever uh, I feel I need to express in any given moment, you know, whether it's telling a story or um, making an observation. Um, one final question for you. you. You're obviously a person of diverse interests. And in an interview, I heard you say that you're a big NFL fan. Yeah. Uh, and so, so three questions for you, and you can be as long or succinct as you want. One, have you written about your NFL fandom? Two, do you have a favorite team? And, and three, by the time this airs, the Super Bowl will be over, but I'm curious to know if you have a prediction. Oh, okay. So, no, I have not. And that's, I have not written about my NFL fandom, and that's interesting. I, I might have to do that. Thank you for that idea, Rolf. You bet. Uh, second of all, um, I was, well, you know, I'm a Browns fan because I grew up in Cleveland, but I followed the Jets for the longest time because I lived in New York for so long. And I used to have season tickets before they moved into the new stadium. But I am truly an NFL fan. I really know something about all of the teams. I, I love the drama. I love the storylines of all of the teams. So I have to tell you, Rolf, I've been absolutely fascinated with the Minnesota Vikings all season long. And it, my heart breaks that Sam Bradford isn't playing because I, I really want the most for him as a quarterback. But I'm excited for that team. And I would love for them to play the Super Bowl in their home stadium. So that's what I'm, I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for the Minnesota Vikings to, to you know, be in the Super Bowl and, and find a way to, um, it looks like it's going to be the Patriots. I, I think, you know, Vikings, Patriots with the Vikings winning. <laughs> That would be that would be a good story. Actually, I grew up in in Kansas, and so I was sort of a de facto Kansas City Chiefs fan. And and in fact, like um, I think the month I was conceived is when the Chiefs beat the Vikings in the Super Bowl and started a long string of sorrow for Vikings in the Super Bowl. And so I think that would be a terrific story if they finally pulled it out. And what better team than the Patriots to to win against? So exactly, exactly in their home stadium. In their home stadiums. Was in Minnesota this year. Yeah, so we're sort of talking to the future, but by the time this airs, it will be in the past, and so it'll be interesting to see how it all turns out. Yay! Yay! Well, thanks a lot for talking uh, with me, uh, Sophronia, and good luck in your future endeavors. Yay.
So thank you, Rolf. Thanks for asking me. You bet. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman helps me with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.